Well, good morning. <laughs> good morning. Welcome to our Sunday school class. Nice to see all of you. Some of you back from vacation. Some have tans. I try to get one and I just peel. So I don't know what to do about that. We are beginning something new today, and I'm going to teach something that probably a handful of people here would have ever even heard about. I certainly didn't hear about this till more recently, and this study is kind of my life. So it's something that not many people know about, but once you learn it, you are it, you might start seeing it everywhere. And so there's gonna be a burden of knowledge put upon you that you will now live with and walk with, and you will either bless me for that or curse me for that. <laughs> that remains to be seen. What I wanna do is take an exegetical deep dive into a biblical letter. And the letter that I want to do this with is Philemon. The book of Philemon, which is really just one chapter, it's 25 verses long. But given the fact that I want to do a deep dive into this book, what I'm not going to do is just start today, Philemon verses 1 through 4, and look at the verses. I would be impressed if we have exegeted our first verse within the next four weeks. I'm not kidding. Because what I want to talk about today is how letters of the Bible, how books of the Bible, how they are structured by the author. You know, once you understand the structure of something, the content that fills it becomes easier to understand. Sometimes we can miss the bigger picture of what's going on because we didn't ever zoom out and see what is the, how did the author put this together? What is the point that he's weaving towards in totality, not just the minor points of these few verses? That's important, but we want to get a whole view of the structure. And there are structures that are purposely put in to every single letter and book of the Bible. One such structure is called a chiastic structure. I put that in the big letters on the note at the back there. So a chiastic structure is a type of literary structure. If anybody has ever taught English or you took an English class, you probably learned about different literary devices such as metaphor, simile, uh, what else? Marlene, you're a teacher. What other structures are there <laughs> or literary devices? Yeah, Foreshadowing, pathetic fallacy, you know, there's a whole bunch of them. You learn these types of things in school. This is ways that an author will write something to, there's always a purpose behind it, but one of these structures is a chiastic structure. What is a chiastic structure? It is a literary device used to connect ideas through repeated or reverse ordering. Okay, so it is going to build up on ideas, A, B, C, D, different ideas, and then they come back down again, A, B, C, D, E, or E, D, C, B, A, in reverse ordering. So it'll either repeat the ideas from the first part of the structure, or it'll descend as a reverse of the first part. I know this is hard to follow now, but it'll all make sense soon. Where can I find chiastic structures? You can find them in many written works of antiquity. Uh, for example, you will see them all over the Old Testament. 
You will see them all over the New Testament. You will find chiastic structures outside of the Bible too. Beowulf, the Quran, Paradise Lost, written by John Milton, the Iliad, and many more, including Odyssey. There's a whole bunch of old works of antiquity that use chiastic structure. Okay, we're using that word. What does a chiastic structure look like? There are various forms and patterns, but it's all about repetition of ideas, usually through reverse ordering. Um, a common pattern, as you have in your note, A, B, C, D, C, B, A. So think of this as there's a few sentences in front of you, maybe uh, from a novel, and the, the author of this novel is gonna start describing a character. John enters into the picture. Oh, I need to pick a name of someone who's not here. Steve, there's no Steves, right? Steve enters into the picture. Steve is a hardworking man. Steve has really sharp eyesight. He's just describing this guy. And then you go on, talk about some other stuff. And then at some point you start showing how his eyesight comes into the picture. And that's now a repetition of the idea that you brought in earlier. Everything you bring up on the buildup of something, you're using on your descend or on your decline. We do this in modern novel writing. I don't remember all the terms for it, but you start out, you're describing your setting, and then you begin your ascent, conflict, drama, all the bad stuff is happening, it's building, it's building, it's building until you get to the climax. And then what usually happens after the climax in a book or a movie? and then it ends. Something like that is a very common way that we write books or the way that we watch movies. A chiastic structure does not look like that. Actually, we usually don't have that long of endings. Kind of more like that. But uh, in a chiastic structure, what you have is setting, build, 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 mountaintop, and then slow descend, and it goes out like that. And everything brought up here near the top is repeated here, either through direct repetition or in a reverse, like it's the opposite. Same thing here, they all match together. That's how, so I remember when I watched uh, Lord of the Rings, of course the books are better, but the movies are pretty good too. And has anybody seen the extended version of Lord of the Rings? Oh yeah, of course, it's much better. <laughs> When you watch the extended version of the third movie, Return of the King, Sauron is defeated, all that type of stuff. Eventually the good guys win, spoiler alert. But what happens in the original, without the extended, it does look kind of like this. Sauron's defeated and it just kind of like ends. But in the extended edition, I was so surprised. After Sauron is defeated, the movie goes on for like another 30 minutes talking about the Shire and where the hobbits go and how this guy died and now where this guy, like, it's like, this guy, Sauron was defeated 30 minutes ago. This movie's still going. It was, I, I, you don't see that really anymore. But that's because we are, uh, the way that we write books and movies, it kind of, after the climax, we just fall, make it fall off of a cliff. In a chiastic structure, it doesn't work like that. And I hope now why I have this here might be clicking into your mind, but let's keep on going. Another pattern, A, B, C, C, B, A. That's a little bit different than the one above. So the one above it, the highlight is going to be the D. Whatever that middle central axis idea D is going to be the key, and then A, B, C, C, B, A support that idea D. But the other pattern can be A, B, C, C repeated, B, A. 
Another one is A, B, C, D, A, D, C, B, A. Saying a lot of letters, but uh, what you can see there, what's the central point of, of the last one is, of course, the A. It's repeated three times. When an author writes this way, if you understand the structure, you're going to understand what the author thinks is most important, what they want you to zero in on. If you miss the structure and you're just talking about some verses, this uh, could apply to this, this could mean that, but you have no idea of the structure, you're going to miss what the author thinks is most important. So why, I've already been uh, alluding to the answer, why do writers use chiastic structures? This is to highlight hinge points, your axis, your central idea of a text or of a passage. <coughs> so the central idea of the patterns above, out of the three patterns there, the central idea in the first one is the D, the central idea in the second one is the C's, and the central idea in the third one is the A's. Why do they do this? To highlight those hinge points. This is also characteristic of effective rhetoric and writing. I brought up before the description of Steve. If the author is going to say to you, the reader, that Steve has really sharp eyesight, if that author does not bring up that eyesight at all, like he sees a hawk in the distance, I don't know, like you need, if you're going to bring up the fact that he has good eyesight, a good author is going to make that weave into the plot somehow. Otherwise, it's a complete waste that doesn't need to be there. So a good author will use the material that he's put in front of you later on in a text. This is also, they use chiastic structures due to the nature of scrolls. Now, think, how did the early church, for instance, read the book of Isaiah? They didn't have it like this. They had to unveil, unroll a scroll. So if the authors are writing in a certain structure and a main idea is going to be found surrounded by repetition of ideas, that means he's trying to get you to zero in on a hinge point. Oftentimes, that hinge point will be in the middle. Why is that important when it comes to scrolls? What do you see when you first open a scroll? The middle. Think about the book of Exodus for a bit. I have Exodus uh, down here uh, later on in the note, but do you, can you tell me what is happening in the beginning of Exodus? What are the Israelites doing, or the Hebrews? What are they doing? Be bold. Sacrificing, not yet. Law wasn't given yet. They're still in enslavement. It was right after Joseph. The Pharaoh didn't remember them anymore, didn't think about them, and put them to slavery. So in the very beginning, you read Exodus 1. What are they doing right in the beginning? They're building Pharaoh's cities. They're building Pharaoh's monuments. They're building for Pharaoh. What is Israel doing in the very last chapter of Exodus? There's 40 chapters. Exodus 40, what are they doing? Just, is that just before entering the promised land? It is a bit before entering the promised land, yeah. Uh, actually, they have just left Egypt, and they're about to go into wilderness, but specifically in chapter 40. They were building a tabernacle. There it is. Chapter 1, they're building Pharaoh's house. Chapter 40, they're building God's house. They're building the tabernacle. Is that just coincidence? 
A lot of people will be tempted when you read this. You'll get suspicious. Come on, you guys are reading this into the text. I was suspicious at first, too. I'm completely convinced now. But the very beginning of Exodus, they're building Pharaoh's house. Chapter 40, they're building God's house, the tabernacle. Not the temple yet, but the tabernacle where his glory rested. And what happens... So there's 40 chapters. The middle chapter is chapter 20. What happens in chapter 20? The law, Ten Commandments. Israel's at Mount Sinai. The glory of the Lord's there. Moses goes up, gets the Ten Commandments, comes back down. Exodus is all about the giving of the law of the covenant God to his people. Is it a mistake that that's right in the middle of the book, in between building Pharaoh's house and building God's house? When you open that scroll, you see the law, the Ten Commandments. I don't think that's by mistake. This is a purposeful literary structure. So... This is also due to the nature of scrolls, why they use chiastic structures. Although it's not just for a whole book, it's for many, many sections as well get built in normal chiastic structures. It's because this was a common device used in ancient times. To help with memorization is one reason. So I mentioned above that it's more common in oral-based learning cultures. At least I think I said that, but it's on the note. Why would it be more common in an oral-based learning culture to have chiastic structure? Uh, the answer is, one, to help with memorization. Think, like, how could people memorize the entire psalms, like 150 psalms? How could people memorize Beowulf? Like, do you feel like we can't rem like memorize things like people used to be able to memorize things? And even trying to memorize three verses in a row can be difficult. But it seems like people could memorize things all the time back then. Well, there's actually a reason for that. No, they didn't just have better natural skills than you. Their literary works were designed this way. Uh, designed so that you would, instead of having to remember 10 different verses, you have to remember five ideas. A, B, C, D, E, D, C, B, A. So it's because it's just a repetition or a reverse order of a previous idea. Now I want to show you one. Dear Dylan, thank you for your interest in our product. We have plenty in stock to suit your needs. Please come to the store and let me show you. Sincerely, Tyler. What I have here is a fake email of a chiastic structure that has ideas A, B, C, B, A. I want you, be bold, to tell me what each of those ideas are, what clues you in, where you find them. What is A in this? You. Dear Dylan. Dear Dylan, this is going to be our, I'll put it here. That's A. Now, what is reverse A? Sincerely Tyler. Sincerely Tyler. Good. So that is reverse A. What's idea B? You get it because, like, hello, goodbye. Like, it's idea B? Product. Thank, uh, interest in our product. That would be part of it, but it goes beyond just that. Interest. Interest. We, we don't Thank you. It. We're not just picking individual words. It's like the entire thing. That everything will, will weave into the structure. That whole sentence. We're going to give idea B. Now, what's B reverse? See how that idea, thank you for your interest, let me show you. That's actually a repeat of B. 
all of this is B reversed. And so, what is my hinge point? It's the only thing left. I have the answer to your problem. Let me solve it. I can do something for you. Right here, this is the key. If we were exegeting my e fake email to Dylan, we want, what, what the big takeaway is, I can provide for his need because I have what he needs. And like, that's the main thing. I want you to know that I am reliable, trustworthy, I can supply, all that type of stuff. So this is the hinge point, the key idea. Everything around it is supporting that idea. Biblical authors do this all the time. All the time. How are chiastic structures used in the Bible? In narrative accounts, the flood, for instance. The flood is a giant chiastic structure. <coughs> Wisdom literature, like Proverbs, tons of it in Proverbs, tons of it in poetry and music like the Psalms. And that's not exhaustive of all the different ways it's used. It's all over the Bible. Those are examples. And so you can find it in entire books, like, as I mentioned, the book of Exodus. I only gave you the A and then the the central point, but if you follow the book, it's actually a chiastic structure the whole way through. The book of Ephesians, or the letter to Ephesians, that is a chiastic structure too. Uh, a lot of Pauline literature is. It can also be used with numbers. You ever read the Bible and it seems like it's just repeating a number? Why, did it, why does it have to tell me seven again? Why is 150 mentioned a couple times in this story? It's part of the chiastic structure. It was used on the way up. It's being used again on the way down. This happens in the flood narrative, which is what we're going to work on in a minute. How might it be helpful then to understand literary structure when reading the Bible? Does this all sound like hooey? This is not really helpful? Well, I think that it focuses you on the main point the author is getting across. <coughs> Do you need to know the exact details of chiastic structure to know that this is like the main thing I want to tell you? Not necessarily, you don't need to know all the definitions of things. But what if we come across more confusing stuff? Like, why does the author to Hebrews have to write about angels? Like, we just kind of read that like, okay, he's more superior to angels, great. Well, if you understand structure, it's part of his argument that he is getting to later on in the book. These aren't disconnected ideas, it's part of his way up. Structure can help us understand a main point the author is getting across. It also makes us more attentive to detail. If there are certain numbers being repeated, it's not by accident. There's, there's reasons for why biblical authors put in what they put in. And then finally, it helps you understand context and past culture. We don't normally write books in a proper chiastic structure anymore. But you could see somebody writing an email like this or in the way that we talk. We can talk in a chiastic way without defining it as such. So it can really help us understand context a bit better. Before we move to the work I want to give you, are there any questions? Any? Yes? So did David have lessons on chiastic structure, like when he was a king in Israel? I mean, yeah. or to me, your email just kind of makes sense that you get to a main point and then you, you refer back to what you know. Um, I'm just curious how these, like, mm -hmm. David, with, well, the Psalms is a chiastic structure and, and the Proverbs, so with Solomon, did they have lessons on this? Like, were the, 
with a wise man teaching how to write mm-hmm. literary That's a good question. Poems or poems or you know like I, I, I'm just curious or is it just something that makes sense that you get to the point and then you refer back to that point? Mm-hmm. So the question being, does, does David know and is he writing chiastic structure on purpose, getting lessons out of it? Is this his intention? Likewise, the other authors of the Bible. They certainly didn't have the word chiastic structure. We know that. But we know that they were users of literary devices of the day. Whatever the name was, just like when we write, we are going to use metaphor, simile, Even if you don't know the proper names for these things, it's just part of effective writing of our day to use this this type of stuff. And so I think contextually, back in David, Solomon, back in their day, the only way that you ever got to write something is if it was really important, first of all. Like you didn't just waste paper, it's expensive, you don't have the product to do this. So whatever you're going to write, you're going to have thought through and organized what you're putting down. You're not wasting words. That would be economically preposterous. So David would be aware of literary devices in his day, just as we're aware of literary devices in our day. Uh, at the same time, or and then combine that with the other part about scrolls, memorization. So they use this type of thing on purpose. But I think a second part to that answer is, we believe that scripture is being written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so I don't think that necessarily every author had every word planned out and I'm going to fulfill like seven different structures and like everything's going to be perfectly aligned. I think sometimes it's more they were led because of what they saw, how the Lord inspired them. And even they would look back at their writings and be like, I wrote that? Well, that that's kind of good. <laughs> I, I, feel, I think that sometimes happens too. So they might not always be aware, they are aware of writing styles of their day, effective writing, that's for sure. And we know that even in the New Testament, like Luke, his Greek is phenomenal. The way that he structures and uses parallels and all, like he's got very, very strong Greek because he was a good writer. And a lot of the biblical authors were, plus they get the help of the Holy Spirit. So So I think the answer is a little bit of, yes, it's on purpose. And another part, they didn't even realize sometimes the Lord was putting it in there. For our benefit. Any other questions before we move to a challenge? Please flip your page to the back. We are going to do a find the chiastic structure of the flood narrative, Genesis 6, 9 until 9, 19. So turn to Genesis 6, please. I don't have enough room on my board to write out the whole thing, so I'm going to do a lot of erasing, but we're going to do this together. Genesis 6, starting at verse 9. All right, the word of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt. Okay, so verse 11 is starting a new idea. Now the earth was corrupt. So before that, we already have an idea there. 
Uh, this one is probably pretty simple, but we're introduced to four characters. Who are we introduced to? Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I'm going to put Noah and his sons. Yep. <laughs> we're introduced, idea A, Noah and his sons. It's always helpful to put the verse there, too, where you're getting it from. 610. Okay. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth. Behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. There's actually a few ideas here. But number one, we're introduced to the idea that it's the earth that's filled with violence. He saw all, all flesh. I've determined to make an end to all. So the idea that I'm getting there is all life on earth. And that is in 13a. But he doesn't just stop there. God sees this and he says, I will destroy, there's violence all over. Violence is one of the symbols of, of the curse. What Cain did to Abel was violence, and that was a sign of curse and fallenness. The earth is filled with this. I think there's an idea of curse going on. It's all, all of it. Even if that word in English is not exactly there, there's a curse on earth. But he's doing yet another thing in 13 for D. 13C, that's the last part, I will destroy them with the earth. He doesn't use the word flood yet, but he's announced uh, there's destruction coming. Well, it'll be revealed to us that it's the flood, but he has announced destruction. I'm going to put the flood is announced. He doesn't use the word flood there, but this is basically the announcement that destruction is coming. A, B, C, D. Verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Okay, there's another new thing. We're going we're gonna to get the ark here. Now I'm assuming we're going to get a description of the ark. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with a pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Okay. Yeah, just as I figured, we got the ark. Ark, we get that in verses 14 to 16. 17, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon this earth to destroy all flesh. Okay, we're, he's, he said that he's going to do it. And what he was announcing is that he, there was going to be a flood coming to destroy uh, all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall Die, everything, all living creatures, all living creatures, everything's going to die. Get that in 17. But he, he goes on, uh, everything that's on the earth shall die, but I'll establish my covenant with you. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your son's wife with you, and of Every living thing of the flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. Uh, they shall be male and female of the birds according to their kind, the animals according to their kind. 
Uh, I keep losing my spot. The animals according to their kinds of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come and you shall keep them alive. So we're talking about everything is going to be in there. 21, take with you every sort of food that is eaten. By the way, I'm not taking every single idea possible in this. I did keep it a little bit brief. Take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Okay, so this is a, this is a happy one, but idea G, food. There's going to be food. It's amazing. Food. And Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. I need to make some space. Hope you guys wrote that down. Seven. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive in the face of all the earth. So you're to take them and care for these animals. What's after G? What's the H? Animals. And... I'm going to add in man's hands. You'll see why that connects later. But you're to take them, bring them in. Set, so that's seven, two, and three. It's going to take some animals. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. Every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Okay, I'm seeing some sevens here. There's, there's a lot of sevens that we're starting to bring up. And on the numerical chasm of the flood account, I think we should write down in number one there that there's seven days waiting to enter the ark. Notice in verse four, for in seven days I will send water. So they have to go and, and wait seven days. So I'm going to put in seven days waiting to enter ark. Seven days waiting to enter ark. That's on the numerical side. That's down on the bottom. Seven days they have to wait to get onto this ark. <coughs> now Noah was 600 years old. I'll just tell you now we're not going to be using the verses in the next little bit. Uh, he, Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons went with him into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals, animals that are not clean, and of birds, of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So it's, now it's happening, what has been described. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, and all of the fountains, there are, there's some more with the numbers here, but we won't worry about these numbers. Uh, although, there was another seven mentioned, wasn't there? And verse 10, after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So he was told to wait for seven days. And now, after seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. Okay, so that seven days of waiting is now over. So this is the second mention of seven days waiting. Second mention of seven days waiting. Is my writing clear like mud? Thank you, Marlene. Uh, verse 12, And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. There it is. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons, entered the ark. 
And they and every beast, according to its kind, all the livestock, according to their kinds, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, according to its kind, every bird, according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was breath of life. Uh, they went into the ark, or, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. We have officially, we are entering the ark. It is happening at last, entering the ark. 17, the flood continued 40 days on earth. 40 days. It's going to go on earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and arose high above the earth 40 days. I feel like that's going to be a significant number here. We might see that number again. Let's talk. Let, let's put down 40 days. 40 days in our numerical one. Verse 17. The waters increased and bore up the ark and rose it high above. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth. And all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Water is increasing. Idea J. Waters increase. We're getting close. Verse 20, the waters prevailed above 21, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures. So everything God said was going to happen is now happening in all mankind. 22, everything on the dry land whose nostrils was the breath of life died, just as he said. He blotted out every living creature that was on the face of the earth. Ground, man and animal, creeping things, birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. 150. 150. That's, that's, a nice, that's a nice number to put down. 150 days. Could someone read for me in a loud, powerful voice? Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in Thank the ark. And God that... made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Thank you. Our whole story has been going up in a certain trajectory to this point, hasn't it? But God remembered Noah. Now we're going to go on to the descend. What is the key axis of the entire flood narrative? God remembers. He is a faithful, covenant-keeping God. The whole axis, everything changes in this story from 8 verse 1. God remembers Noah. And that is going to be what st that's the axis as well in the numerical chasm. God remembers Noah. How do I know that? Because verse 2, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. The waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. Wait, 150 days down on 4 here. That's 4 repeated. So put 150 days below our axis on the numerical chasm. 150 days in verse 3. He opened it. Um, yeah, let's keep on going. Verse 5. And the waters continued to abate to the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. 40 days. There it is again. 
On number three, reverse in your numerical chasm, 40 days. There's the repeat again from verse three or from number three. Verse eight. He sent a dove from him to see if the water subsided. The dove found no place. She returned. The waters were still on the earth. He took her, brought her into the ark with him. The dove came back in the evening. Behold, found an olive leaf. Noah knew the, the water subsided. He waited another seven days. Wait, he waited another seven, day, seven days. We're talking about seven days again. Uh, remember when he had to wait seven days before, earlier, to get in? So in verse 10, he waited another seven days. Seven days waiting for the dove is number two reverse. Seven days waiting for the dove. In verse 10, seven days waiting for the dove. Moving on, verse 11. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a fleshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew the waters subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Second mention of seven days waiting, just like before. So that's the last one. Second seven days waiting. So that's one reverse. Second seven days waiting. Is Moses completely unaware of what he's doing? Or is this intentional? Is God inspiring this? We're going to move forward. Down to verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried off from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth dried out. Okay, so J, J reversed. Instead of waters increase, waters subside. Waters subside. We get that in 13 and 14. 14 or 15. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Talking just like before. It, talk, it mentions the sons, the wives, all this. And in 16... Or starting in 15 all the way down, bring with you every living creature of the flesh, birds, animals, creeping things, swarm of the earth, be fruitful, multiply. So Noah went out, his sons, his wife, sons, wives with him, every beast, every bird, everything that moves, went out from the ark, exiting the ark. I reversed. Instead of entering the ark, now we are exiting the ark. Exiting the ark. <coughs> Uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip a few verses. We're going to come to chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered. Remember before he had to take them and bring them into the ark? Well, now everything is in your hand. All of it. Idea H reversed. Animals in man's hands. And in man hand. <laughs> Pretend you can read that. <laughs> Verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Food. He, met, he very specifically mentioned food 
earlier, back in G, six, uh, that was in verse 21. G reversed, food. There's that mention again. We're going to skip more verses. Go down to 10, chapter 9, verse 10. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast on the earth. So, remember when he talked about every living creature earlier? Everything, all living creatures back in F, 6, uh, verses 17 to 20. Well, here it is. Every living creature that's with you. Second mention. So, all living creatures. Again, in F reversed. All living creatures. And after that, as many as came out of the ark. Back in E, we talked about the ark. He was building the ark. And here's another mention of the ark again afterwards. E reversed. 10B. As many came out of the ark. Second mention of ark. E reversed is just ark. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So, in idea B, his destruction, his flood coming to destroy, the flood being announced, no flood in the future. D, no flood in the future. What he did on the way up, he's repeating on the way down. That's the whole point. Starting in 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I have between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. I set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Wait, God put that rainbow there for a reason? It's not whatever we want it to be? That's, that's another issue. 14, when I bring the clouds over the earth, the bow is seen in the clouds. I'll remember my covenant that's between you and every, me, you, and every living creature of the flesh. The water shall never again destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I'll see it, the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Uh, so this, instead of sea, where there was a curse, there was violence all over the earth. It's cursed, sea reversed. Blessing slash promise on earth. Blessing slash promise on the earth instead of the curse instead of violence (coughs) we get that from 12 to 17 but in 16 we picked up another interesting detail there every living creature of all flesh didn't we get that back in B all life on earth well B reversed all life on earth there it is again all life on earth, 9.16. Verse 17. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people the whole of the whole earth were dispersed. What a bow on the end of this story. Noah and his sons. Right after that, it's going to say, Noah was a man of the soil who planted a vineyard, moves in a new direction, flood story over. Starts with Noah and his sons. You know it's over because the second mention, Noah and his sons specifically. Then it moves to a new story. So, A reversed, Noah and his sons. (coughs) You have a chiastic structure here. Did I not put in every single detail possible? Yes, I didn't put in every detail possible, and I'm still basically over time. 
But the key axis, everything hinged on chapter 8, verse 1. God remembers Noah. That's the key axis. God remembers his covenant to his people and keeps them. That is a theme of Genesis, introducing the faithful covenant-keeping God. The reader is supposed to remember this, that God-remembered phrase, because it appears later in the book. This is the last thing I'll show you. If you turn your page to Genesis 19, Genesis 19, last thing I'll show you. Verse 27, Abraham went to the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley. He looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent out Lot in the midst of to overthrow. That phrase is going to appear again in the book. You're supposed to have that axis in mind. God remembers. He keeps his covenant. He's faithful. That's the importance of chiastic structure. We're going to do some more work on that next week, but I don't have time for questions. My apologies. Let's pray and we'll move on to worship. Thank you, Lord, for your scriptures. I thank you that you inspired the writing of them, and even thousands of years later, we can benefit from what you have put into that book, into your book. Let us be submissive to your book. Love your word, love your truth. Prepare our hearts now for worship. Amen.